Well, uh, how do you say your name, Joe? Alex. Al Alex, okay. <laughs> you still <laughs> got uh, Jarvanky. Yeah, I'll change that after this call. <laughs> I think three times is enough for me to get the hint right. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your patience, Domenato. But yeah, Alex. <laughs> okay, Alex. Um, we the, the question that you have, uh, let's see if we can set a context for it that's a little bit better. First off, um, I think that uh, a lot of people are confused by seeing the Eightfold Noble Path as an actual path, to where in fact it's not a path at all, it's a method. That uh, when we think of the word path, we think of, um, oh, a bicycle path, a footpath, that yeah. kind of thing, and it's a destination that we're going to. And that the reality is, is that no, there's no place to go. There's nothing to do. The question is, is how, what's happening right now? And the what's happening right now is, are we awake to it or not? If we're awake to what's happening, if we're actually watching what's going on, uh, be here now, that's the sati. Uh, I think also translating sati into mindfulness is with, so we've got a whole lot of bad translations. And when you have a whole lot of words that are badly translated for a whole audience, then there's going to be a lot of confusion. Okay, so mindfulness is not a good word for sati. That uh, in fact, mindfulness is pointing more into the degree of investigation. And so what we're doing is, is that we're breaking these things out according to the way that the Buddha did. But when the word mindfulness is used, it kind of packs things together without giving the students the actual understanding of what we're doing. And so waking up and taking a look. And you also, you've heard that expression to wake up and smell the coffee. Yes. Okay, waking up to smell the coffee, that's Anapanasati right there. That in fact, the smelling of the coffee is sensory awareness. And the inhale that we do to smell the coffee is the in-breathing. And so there it goes. I mean, we, we have quite a lot of the practice just in the phrase of wake up and smell the coffee. Um, or another way of saying it is wake up and get a load of what's happening. So this is really the practice. There's no place to go. That everyone is already fully enlightened when they're aware of what's going on. That's what the sati is all about, is wakefulness. And that's the only thing that the Buddha ever claimed. There's a story about that, in fact, that when he was on the way from Bodh Gaya up to uh, 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 Isipanya, the deer park, to, uh, to meet up with his buddies who had abandoned him when they saw him getting fat again. And so, um, uh, this guy asked him on the road, 
who are you? What are you? Are you some sort of deity? Are you sort of some sort of magical creature, a unicorn or whatever like that? And he says, no, I'm just awake. That's in fact what the word Bodhi and Buddha and all of those words mean. It just means to be awake. And yet because of our magical belief systems of Christianity and all of our culture, we turn the word Buddha into a magical word. And so in that regard, it's too badly translated. Okay, so when you apply Saiti, you wake up and you take a look at what's going on. That's Bodhi. That's a wakefulness. That's being uh, uh, there for it. And this is also the knowledge of the present moment. And if we can see now, if we can see through knowledge what's going on, now we have better choices. If we can't see what's going on, then we are probably going to be making bad choices or not making any choices at all. We're just going to let it roll. But once we wake up and check it out and see what's going on, we can now uh, take control by making a change. Okay, so we wake up, we take a look at what's going on, we wake up and we smell the coffee, and then we decide maybe it needs some sugar or some cream. And this is fifth and sixth exercises of Anapanasati. Mm -hmm. Yes. Joy, generate happiness. Generate the joy, generate the happiness. And so this is where so many people miss the point when they hear the word path and they hear the word mindfulness is because those two things are both misleading as to what we're actually doing. Yes, because path. Perhaps in our language more accurately could be translated from Pali or Sanskrit or wherever we get it from to something more akin to process. Mm -hmm. Yes, or just and simple. He, even now there is a process change. Right now there is a process that's underlying that, but that's not our job. Our job is to wake up right now. And to wake up right now and to wake up right now. That and so we do the good stuff that's here and now to what needs to be doing what it needs to be doing. Am I tracking? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so um, what happens then is keep doing that one thing over and over again, or these one, two or three things over and over again, we get pretty good at it. Yes. Because we develop the skill through repetition. Why do we try to distract ourselves in this manner? For example, my meditation sometimes becomes very interesting, and yet when I am exercising sati during my practice, my sitting practice, I find my mind is so very wonderfully adept at discursive thought. For example, I can sit with my eyes open, and at times a light comes forth. And this light, if I pay attention to it, is a trap. It's a trick. It's a silly thing yeah. to do when you practice doing things enough. Sometimes silly things happen, I think. And if I get into it, there's I, a whole I, group of people. Suffer. 
there's a whole group of perhaps over periods of many, many centuries where people think, oh, that's a good thing. That's what I should be practicing, Hindu and all of that kind of stuff. And that they do things like fire meditations or whatever like that. Uh, And that um, this is really not what uh, the practice is is all about. Uh, And it's also really not, in a way, altered states of consciousness. It's Uh, more... It's more craving. Well, basically what I'm saying is sensual pleasure. uh, Actually, you're you're correct. When people sit down to meditate, they don't sit down to relax and let go and get rid of things. They they go into meditation because they want something. They are desiring something. So people approach meditation. In fact, that's the only way that you can approach it. Because if you already didn't want anything, then you wouldn't be out doing anything like meditation or whatever. So we always come to the practice of the Buddha through desire. Yeah. And so we're already even there's no other way to get started rather than getting started wrong. Right. How beautiful. Okay, so that hey, you can see I love that. But B, <laughs> so once once I get in then and I see meat and potatoes, but the meat and potatoes is just stuff, okay? Because that's the way that the perspective seems to shift as it goes well, from meat and potatoes. I suppose to, that's what oh. you thought of. Okay. Right. So so now what I want to know then is when I read on dependent origination, how does dependent origination fit with anapana sati? Well, actually, um, it it fits in quite well. Yeah. It, okay, it fits in in the following way. The first thing that needs to be done is getting the mind fit for work. Okay. And then once we get the mind fit for work, then we can start investigating the mind and its activities itself. But because our mind is normally scattered, we're we're going to miss the subtleties of because what's going of on. The lack of ekagata. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Okay. All right. So let's put it this way about the Petita Samupada, and that is is that everybody wakes up. Everybody wakes up. And the question is, when do they wake up? All right. Now, here's the example of everybody wakes up that let us say that two guys are in uh, an argument. It could be two college professors. It could be two uh, teenagers. It could be two bar flies. It could be two um, generals or it could be two preachers. It doesn't matter who it is. They're arguing. Okay. now, if neither one of them wakes up at all during that argument, it's either going to go into violence or perhaps produce a corpse. But that rarely happens with arguments. Why is that? Is because generally people wake up to the dukkha. This is too much. I've had enough of this argument. You see, the interesting thing about an argument is nobody ever wins an argument. Right. Right, of course. Okay. The example is is that you you find a guy from Manchester wa- uh, waltzing into a, a pub in uh, um, Manchester, 
um, uh, and finds that people are uh, they they have um, uh, the local team. So uh, Liverpool and Manchester guys, when they meet, they're going to have an argument over who football team is better, and nobody ever gets convinced. Yeah. Okay, two politicians or two people into politics get into an argument about politics and neither one of them convinces the other. They always go away feeling bad, feeling worse. It's always a lose-lose situation. The question is, is when do they figure out that this is a lose-lose situation? So the example then would be the husband and wife who are fighting and all of a sudden the husband gets a load of something. This is going wrong. And so he turns around and and walks out of the room and slams the door. Okay, the argument is over. That means that he did wake up. He just woke up really, really late. Right. Far, far too late, huh? Far too late. And so this is what the whole point of it is, is that we need to wake up to the dukkha before it gets big. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have, have to catch it quick and catch it small. And this is the skills that we're developing is to be able to pick up. So Sati actually has three qualities to it. Okay. And that is, how often does it happen? In other words, just out of the blue, sati comes. Mm-hmm. Right? Because we've been told about it or something like that to wake up and yeah. take a look. Okay, so that's the first thing is how often does this happen? The second quality of it is what is the strength? Because oh. we wake up to the present moment quite often. I mean, when the, when the waiter brings food to the table, people who are talking at the table, they'll wake up to the fact that the waiter yeah. just came. They see him coming, and we get into the here now, but it's a very weak here now. Right, and that's why you're still indecisive. You're listening right. to the other mm-hmm. tables. Yeah. So we do have the ability to get into the here now quite easily, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have any real strength to it. We have to build that strength up. Right. Okay. And so as we build up the frequency and as we build up the strength that takes on a new feature, and that is, is that how quick is it? Yeah. The the, the return to baseline. Keep returning so that you can see this stuff that's at a very subtle level. In that regard, that means that Patita Samupada is taught forwards in the sense of cause and effect and cause and effect, but it's practiced backwards because of the speed of the mind. Okay. So it's practiced backwards. And where we start is we start with the dukkha. We wake up to the dukkha. Then we wake up to the selfishness that's that. And then we wake up to the clinging or the caring. Okay. When we wake up into the caring, then we wake up to the fact that we want it, therefore we crave it. And yeah. then we wake up to the next level, which is the feelings. Now, if our feelings are already out of control, there's not much chance of getting anything else done other than that. So here's where Anapanasati comes in in a really brilliant way, is that we've got to get the mind fit for work. And part of the way of getting the mind fit for work is to be able to control your feelings so that you can feel the way you want to feel rather than feeling the way that we're in the habit of feeling. Right. 
So now we can begin to control those it's feelings so that we have sukha and pity rather than fear, trepidation, anguish, desire, uh, anxiety, stress, all of those kind of things. We can't see Paticca Samuppada when the mind is in that state. We've got right. to get it fit for work. And this is much of what this discursive thought seems to be doing, is it seems to be thinking that it's protecting me from having to see these links, and yet, obviously, it just really makes it continue. Well, yes, that's exactly true. And also, discursive thought is not our enemy. Right. It's, a, it's, it's like, like a little, walking. It's, it's trying like to do walking. its best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, need, yeah. we need to walk. We need to have discursive thoughts. Right. The question is, which direction are we walking in? Um, yes, 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 yes. We're yes. walking into this, danger. This whole, this whole thing is the last little filter before it all just bubbles out into the world, huh? So we might want to make sure we put some good bubbles out. Exactly true. Uh-huh. In fact, here okay. is a way of thinking about it, is, is that our thoughts and our feelings are wrapped together. And yes. the way that we start is with the <laughs> thoughts. When we get the thoughts and feelings together, that's when now the thoughts lead to speech. It leads to talking. It also leads to discursive thought. Right. And then discursive thought then will lead to talking. So if we're having wholesome discursive thoughts, then we'll have wholesome discursive language and and um, and sounds and speech and write noble speech. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so if we have good speech, then we will have good behavior, good actions, because right. most of the time our speech is actually a kind of an action anyway. So our speech leads to actions. And now the comma comes in. The actions of our comma set up our habits. We do things over and over again until they, ha- they form habits and then our habits lead to our destiny. Well, a destiny is a pretty hard thing to change. Habits are pretty hard things to change, but the thought that we're having right now is easy enough to change. And so we start at the easiest place first, starting to change our thoughts from unwholesome to wholesome thoughts. And that will change your destiny just by having wholesome thoughts. It also changes the way that you feel. If you have unwholesome thoughts, then you're going to feel bad. And if you have wholesome thoughts, you're going to feel good. And so this is what we're actually working on. This is the Anapanasati where where the Buddha actually, this is in so many suttas. And the thing that's so surprising is, is that he's got different ways of speaking about it. In one place is called obstructions. Another place is called hindrances. Yeah. Another place is called unwholesome thoughts and versus wholesome thoughts. And in the Anapanasati Sutta is referred to as gladdening or brightening the mind. Right. Yes. Okay. Right. And you can see that all of those things are the same thing. They're all the this same way, uh, thing. Some traditions derive the idea with the Stream entry, once returner, no return, arahat. Is this where they, because I see this mapped to the listing of fetters and defilements and other such things like this. And so far as like this route, and I'm not in, I, I myself am not concerned so much with their idea of what the route is, but rather just understanding what people derive from the teachings and how they arrive at their okay. conclusions. I think Normally help. what people derive from that, especially the Westerners, what they derive yeah. from that is a lot of selfishness. 
Right. Yes. It's okay. titles. They, they it's turn the it on as a goal. Okay. Yeah. The goal right. is a soda pine, um, or the goal is Arahat or something like yeah. this. And right. basically what we're actually practicing is to stop having goals. Yes. Yes. Okay. Stop having those kind of goals. Uh, but if we do it in a particular way, in fact, uh, soda pine is a good example because there is a sutta that it is very specifically mapped out right. of exactly the process the... that the human mind goes through yeah. in order to, um, uh, let us say, gain the fruit of the right. soda pond. Okay, so the first step of the soda pond, the first knowledge of the soda pond is that we have the the knowledge, the first knowledge is, is that no matter what obstructions, what hindrances, or what unwholesome thoughts come into the mind, with sati and anapanasati, I can throw that stuff out of the mind so that I can see reality the way that it actually is. Okay, now, um, an example of that is you're on the road and you see the siren, or you hear the sirens and hear the blue and red flashing lights, okay? And so immediately the mind jumps to cop. It immediately jumps to, oh no, something bad's going to happen. Uh, I'm afraid of cops, etc., like that. The reality of it is, is that there is just a man in a blue suit. That's the reality of it. The word cop is what we add to it that adds all of the danger. Yes. Okay, so... Um, in, in, in a kind of a reality, the way that to police, and especially in America, but it's, this is true all over the world, is, is that if you give people authority, they will abuse that authority. Yeah. No bun right. properly, and that will happen with daddy who spanks his children. It happens with judges. It happens especially with um, uh, guards in prisons. But everyone who is in charge of other people will abuse that authority. You've heard that power corrupts and ultimate power ultimately corrupts. So that means here in the sense of Dhamma, we're not going to be bothering and trying to get power because for sure somebody's going to try to take it away from us. And now we've got to fight. So, but like if we don't have anything. Ask the Buddha about the cows he lost. <laughs> <laughs> Very lucky, my friends, you have no cows to lose. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, what happens when the policeman comes is, is that we live in a delusional world that it's dangerous. That, in fact, there have been many occasions and associations where the people got, or the guy got killed because he was afraid of the police, yes. running away from the police, and the police shoot him in the right. back. Yeah. Or he gets really agitated and say, don't hurt me and don't hurt me. And they'll finally sit on him and get him to be quiet. And the more he struggles, but see, he's struggling out of fear. Right. He's not, if he would wake the up. the police officer has the knee out of fear, everyone's acting out of fear. Everybody's it's, all, it's too hard. It's too mm -hmm. much to Right. And so if we can uh, trust ourselves that we can handle a traffic stop beautifully. Right. And that we can handle this guy in this blue suit beautifully. Yeah. 
No problem. We can do that. Okay. So that's the first knowledge that we can that's handle right. any situation because we can clean out our mind and right. handle the situation the way that it should be handled. Take reality as it is rather than taking it like fear. That in fact, when the policeman does come up to the, uh, uh, to the driver, the driver will automatically go into the past and deal with the police the way that they have dealt with them way deep in the past. And yep. so if you uh, 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 call uh, a policeman a pig or a dirty copper when you're a kid, that mm -hmm. kind of mentality is going to stay with us. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. we're not dealing with the situation the way that it is. We're dealing with it in the way that we think, how bad can this get? And it generally will get that bad because we do create our own reality. Yeah, most assuredly. And we certainly okay. help others, brothers, huh? So now you can see that this is actually a very special condition. Yeah. This, is, this, this knowledge that I can clean out my mind and handle the situation correctly. That's the first step of the, the path. That's noble. That's a factor of this uh, Eightfold Noble Path. And this kind of knowledge is not held by ordinary people. This is the supramundane path. This is the supramundane path. And the first uh -huh. step of the supramundane path means that I can handle this situation. I've got that much confidence. And I can't clean out I my mind. Each other's situation. Mm-hmm. One by one as they occur. One by one, each mind moment, each kind of uh, thing that happens, because things are completely different. It's an absolute. Here the guy is tooling down the road. Whatever he's got on his mind, that's one person. He sees those lights in the back of his car, and now he's all of a sudden a completely different person than he was. Nope. Split. Why? Because the fear came up. Yeah. So. Have to it's, have fear. Pardon? Do we have to have fear? Yes, oh, absolutely. We have to allow fear to condition reality. Can we experience fear sans conditioning? Actually, As let's go back to very primitive things yes. that every bird, every insect, every tick on every dog all have fear. That if yes, you take a okay. tick off of a dog, this. it will try to run away from you. The, the mice right. will try to run away from the cat. Okay, so right. fear is a built-in self-preservation mechanism. Oh, we all yeah. have it. Right. Okay, now that fear is conditioned. That uh, instinct is conditioned, but we know about it and call it self-preservation instinct. Yes. But that means that when we're operating instinctually, we're operating out of the past, out of the old reptilian brain, and all it knows is history. It doesn't know how to figure out something new. Okay, uh -huh. so we have to be able to take over our instincts and control them. Okay. Making friends with our instincts. Yes. Okay, then in fact, the four modes of clinging are nothing but the four modes of instincts. We instinctively cling to things. We instinctively, um, uh, let us say, are programmed and trained by a family. Every child is trained and trained by a family, and everybody there is out of control with their um, self-preservation instinct. 
Right. And so what happens in our society is a lot of false positives. We feel fear when there's nothing real, real reason to fear. But it's a whole lot better to have false positives than having false negatives, because those who have false negatives are dead. Right. Okay. if we if there is a time to be afraid and we're not afraid, that's really dangerous for us. Okay. so what we need to then do is to use wisdom as a substitution for fear. How do we do that is because now with wisdom, we know we can see what is dangerous. And so we avoid the danger through wisdom rather than walking into danger and then becoming afraid. Ah, this is why we cultivate causes and conditions and meditation conducts itself. Mm-hmm. And because so all we have to do is going to worry. Exactly. All we have to do is to come out of our fear. Yes. Okay. So there's a procedure for coming out of fear. And the procedure is happening right now. And so we have to practice this little procedure over and over again. So here is the procedure is, is that we have to get the body itself in reality in a safe place. Mm -hmm. Sitting in your car with the doors closed is a fairly safe place. It's also possible that a cop, in fact, the most likely person to come to your window, wherever you're sitting in your car is going to be a cop. Right. Yep. Okay. But Mm -hmm. if you feel safe and secure when he comes up, you can handle him very well. But if you're already afraid of the dangers of being in your car, even though the car is actually a safe place. Right. So the reality is, is that we're safe. Mm hmm. Secure, safe, satisfied. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly right. But we don't feel safe because we think of things that could go wrong. And then we feel in danger because we thought of things going wrong. If we think that here I am in reality, I am safe. Uh, And so we have to address the fear by saying, never mind, I'm safe. I feel safe. The reality of the situation is safe. Why should I feel fear when the fear is just an old habit? So... When we say that we practice dependent origination in reverse, yet teach it going forward, is there a time in practical application that dependent origination going forward is looked at to generate gladness in the mind? Is this another? No, it's the opposite of that. I see. Oh, because natural state is the gladness to reverse the links is to reveal what's there? Right. Okay. The reality of the situation is is that you're safe and sound. The memories are of danger. Right. So we don't need to fabricate safety. We need to deconstruct danger. Yes. Yes. Okay. I see. Yes. That's a a beautiful point. Right. We don't need to create safety because we're already safe. The reality is that we're safe, but we do need to deconstruct the danger that we carry from our past. Yeah, because many times that can stop us from seeing what danger is present if we're not able to look at it. Exactly. Okay. Okay. That's that's wisdom is to see danger from a distance. 
Yeah, before running up on it. <laughs> yeah, before it runs up on us, okay? Yeah. So seeing yeah. danger from a distance is the, uh, uh, the wisdom that we add to it. But here's where that comes from, is, is that we actually begin then to tell ourselves with discursive thought, talking ourselves into feeling safe. Mm-hmm. You know, this is okay right now. There's no danger. Okay. Everything is all right. Okay, so we begin to talk ourselves into feeling safe and secure. The next thing is, is that that seat that you're in in the car, because car seats are made for long distance travel, they're made to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. You can adjust the seat for your comfort. So letting the body get comfortable is an important point, because if the body is comfortable and safe, and secure, then the mind can be comfortable, safe and secure. This makes and sense. this is one of the dangers that people have with meditation is because they think that all oh, the longer I sit here, the better off I'll be. And in fact, no, they get the body uh, feeling un- un- uncomfortable. Oh, this makes so much sense because I recall many a meditative experience where I've encountered like basically what is in my mind anyways, a good illustration of the links in forward process, but without concept over it so you know like you feel some thing hit your leg and obviously the lizard brain's like hey that happened when you were three and it was bad and then all of a mm-hmm. sudden i've got bad feeling in the mind that i recognize without picture or talk and i'm like oh i see what happens something triggers something triggers something triggers something and if you just go often that's enough to make it stop just long enough to go hey I'm happy to be here. This is a nice breath. The next one's going to be great. I love this one, though. It's amazing. You know, and then it it goes and practice it in reverse. Okay. I see that. Right. That's very okay. nice. Thank you for letting me to talk that out. All right. So here's, here's where we are now is, is that we're going to now practice by being in a safe, secure environment, just comfortable, and we talk ourselves into feeling by talking ourselves into it, we actually begin to feel safe yeah. and secure. The reality is safe and secure. The conversation is safe and secure. And so the feelings in the reptilian brain begin to feel safe and secure. Okay. So with the feelings of safe and secure and comfortable and satisfied, ah, now we're kind of in reality and it's also now we're being able to control our feelings okay so now let's look at the particular samupada from the place of where does the fear actually come from because there's a mechanism and that mechanism is because the buddha talks about it in the sense that there are three kinds of feelings associated with teacher samupada and that is the feeling of i like it the feeling that I don't like it, okay? And if I don't like it, then I know what it is. But there's a third kind of feeling, and that third kind of feeling is I'm not sure whether I like it or not. I'm not sure what it is. And that uncertainty and unsecurity is the mechanism that brings in fear. It comes in the form of doubt. Oh, if I don't know what it is, it might be dangerous. Oh, so I should investigate it. And this is why they say that doubt can arise as investigation. Well, 
Yes, doubt does arise investigation only in the sense that you're investigating, but not enough yet. Right. You start okay. the investigation, you see something, but you haven't seen it often or clear enough to you know what it is. Yeah. And so it brings in doubt. Now, one of the things that we can teach our students about the doubt when they're sitting in meditation is, is that when any doubts come up, we can say, wait a minute, I don't have to have the answer to that right now. I can still feel safe and secure and comfortable and satisfied, even if I don't know. This teaches us right noble desire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right so, noble. yeah, okay, okay. But um, you can see where this instinct leads society in the sense that, okay, we have the four instincts of self-preservation, procreation, which is also the way that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa really works with this, is materialism. Yes, okay. Okay, we live in a material world um, because of the society that we're in, and so we think that we're going to get protection by our weapons, by our um, uh, property that we own. A lot of people say, oh, if I had a lot of money, I would feel more safe and secure. Guess what? If you've got a lot of money, now you have to make yourself feel safe and secure and the money feeling safe and secure. Okay, so you actually, by having a lot of money, you actually create more problems. So if we can see that, then we can go back to this instinct business and recognize that we feel safe in our nest Mm-hmm. Only if we're doing according to the rules of the nest. If we break the rules in the nest, we'll get thrown out of the nest. And so we go along and get to get along so we can stay in the nest and feel safe and secure. Mm-hmm. Now that leads to the next one, which is where we're going with this. And that is the territorial instinct is that place which is not our territory, not our nest. There is the other and the other is unknown. Those people who wear turbans must be dangerous because I don't know anything about them. Those guys who carry little knives because of their religion, they must be dangerous because Mm -hmm. they're carrying knives. And I don't know anything about their religion, so they're carrying knives make them dangerous. Okay, so this is a mentality that we have. Whatever we don't understand, the mind will naturally want to add danger to it. This is where racism. Yep. Bigotry, tribalism, political parties, and all of that stuff comes from is the fear of the things that are not known to us. And in fact, one of the reasons why the Republicans are so afraid of the Democrats is because the Republicans don't know anything about the Democrats. If they did know something about the Democrats, they wouldn't be nearly as afraid of them as they are. Yeah, and Republicans are really good at making up a bunch of crap and a bunch of lies to get people to vote, and so people are going to stay confused and ignorant. Right. The same thing happens with Democrats also. They don't know what the Republicans are actually up to. Right. And so they're right. afraid of them also. And so everybody winds up being afraid of everybody else because of the lack of knowledge. And so there's that doubt in there. Yeah. And when we recognize that things that are unknown to us are not necessarily dangerous. Right. Okay, this is exactly where religions get involved with this in the sense of the fear of God. What is the fear of God? It's the fear of the unknown. 
because you don't know God because you can't find him. He doesn't present himself at all. So the, the distinction between God and no God, there's no distinction between the two. Yeah, not experientially, right? Yeah. Not experientially, but mentally, if yeah. we invent a God, then we invent a God who is going to take retribution on us. And so we have to fear this dude. Because it's a big version of living in the nest. Mm-hmm. It's exactly, you know, precisely correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is where it all comes from, is the doubt and the recognition that just because I don't know doesn't mean that I have to be afraid. Just because I don't know doesn't affect me at all. Right. That, in fact, I should be uh, more interested in the things that do exist and are real mm-hmm. and to recognize whether they are dangerous or not. That's the wisdom that comes in is never mind the doubt. Let's investigate. Let's get some data here. Okay. I see that. I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. And and we can do it in two ways. One is we can figure out what it was that we were confused about and get some data that way. Or we can also do it in the way of, wait a minute, even though I don't know what it is, it doesn't have any effect upon me. And so we either know what it is and it has no effect on me, or we don't know what it is and we still recognize that it still doesn't have any effect upon me, that I'm the one who's creating the doubt and the misery and the worry. Right. 100%. And oh, is this why? The Buddha stated that when in jhana, we must have mindfulness with clear comprehension because we can see what's there and what's not. So, well, out of jhana, actually, to be in jhana is not that you have to, you got it backwards. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, <laughs> okay. That it's not that you're in jhana, so you have to have clear comprehension. It's when you do have clear comprehension, you're in the jhana. Uh, and then That's jhana what, arise it. Okay, I see what you're saying. And in doing so, because this is the big thing I took from comparing states of mind, mm-hmm. pre-jhana, jhana, post-jhana is, I mean, really what I took from it is that, 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 well, I guess the future is here. I don't know exactly how you want to say it in words because it doesn't work that way, but uh, this makes more sense to me is what I'm saying. And I didn't mm-hmm. realize, I think, at first that I had it backwards. I thought you develop jhanic concentration in order to attain to mindfulness with clear comprehension it makes so much more sense when i hear you tell me whoop, flip it on its head and i remember in mm-hmm. a past talk you've told me we start with right view which mm-hmm. if you do that you naturally in my opinion and in my experience develop mindfulness with clear comprehension and then along comes jhana because mm-hmm. only with mindfulness with clear comprehension can you even see that the jhana characteristics are there or not well that little phrase that you've heard, clear yeah. uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension, is coming out of the commentaries. But if you look yeah. at it, that's just still the Eightfold Noble Path. That it's when okay. you wake up the sati and you look, you will have clear comprehension because you've been looking at it yep. rather than worrying about it. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Yeah, because you get to. <laughs> okay, I see that. That makes so sense. we clearly comprehend something by investigating it over and over and over again. A right. little example of that is, is that you look and you see this, this square and you call yeah. it a square. You think it's a square, but mm-hmm. all you have to do is start to turn it around and look at it. And it's not a square at all. It's a cube. Yeah. 
that but makes we sense. didn't see the other sides of it because we only right. looked at it from one perspective. But by turning yep. around, we begin to see the other sides of these things. And so that's part of the investigation is to look at things okay. from various angles. Okay. But oh, always and commentaries and sub commentaries offer up so many potential. I, I don't know. When I see him, I think of it like a detective, like these are investigative leads. Like this is one way that this presents. This is another way this presents. And these are there so that we can understand basically what uh, specific characteristics arise with what phenomena. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. okay. Exactly so. I now, we can use the example of um, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. Watson. Yes. Okay. okay. I love that. All right. This, and, this, and uh, Doyle wrote this in almost every book that he wrote. Yep. It's about that something spectacular happens. Nobody knows what to do. Eventually, yep. Sherlock Holmes is called and he brings Watson with him. And yep. what does uh, Sherlock Holmes do? In fact, he's well known for that strange kind of cap, that strange Mersham pipe. And what's mm -hmm. the third item? The magnifying glass. Yep. The magnifying glass, and there he goes mm -hmm. with his magnifying glass, and he's looking all over the crime scene. And Watson's right. just kind of there taking it in, huh? Mm -hmm. To where yep. Watson, when he goes with him, he muses about the people who were there and what might have happened and things like this. And so he's trying to figure it out the way that most people do to where Sherlock Holmes is actually investigating the crime scene. Yes. Yes. And he then okay. was always confused. How could you do this? How could you do that? Yeah, right. How could you figure What's that out? Well, it was right there. I just looked and yeah. saw, but you're yeah. not seeing, you're amusing. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I'm going to reread a few of them now. Okay. <laughs> I never thought of that, that play out there. That's amazing. Yes. So as we begin to investigate more and more, we will have clear comprehension, just like Sherlock Holmes has that clear comprehension. And all Watson has is the musing, yep. the what ifs and the questions and all of that kind of stuff. So Watson is still in doubt. Right. And he doesn't know anything. Right. Sherlock Holmes is also in doubt, but he's gathering data. Yes. And so his doubt is different than than Watson's doubt. Right. Because, because his, his doubt's doubt got is, data. Yep. I was insane. It's just waiting to go. Mm -hmm. Whereas Watson's is, I don't know if it's going to stay or go. Uh-huh. And so the more data we get, the more clear our comprehension gets. Okay. Now, normally the way that the mind works is as soon as we get something, we don't like being confused. Yeah. And so we try to get an answer to it. You can see, in fact, that that's where religions start, that the little boy is asking his old uncle way million years ago or 100,000 years ago, oh, well, what are the stars? Right. And uncle doesn't know. And instead of why don't you go investigate the stars and find out for yourself, uncle makes up a story. Right. It's oh, probably. there's Orion and there's uh, Leo and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so these are where all these stories come from. All of our mythology comes out of ignorance or let right. us say mostly ignorance and a little bit of data. Right. Exactly. And so Just enough to make them helpful enough to stick around and get built on top of each time. Mm hmm. 
Just so enough. what we want to do then is to ignore the deep past and still get more data and more data and more data. Mm -hmm. So that we do have a clear comprehension of what's happening rather than jumping to conclusions. Right. That that's right. in fact what we do. We jump to a conclusion because we do not want to be in doubt and we don't even care whether the conclusion is wrong or not. So long as we feel secure enough because I've got a conclusion now. Right. And so uh, what as we do then is that we, we remember. Pardon? As long as it is just stable enough, like if we can tap it two or three times and it doesn't just immediately shatter, most of the time we, oh yeah, that's it, and go. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes yeah. we don't even bother to hit it. We just find it and say, that's it. <laughs> yep. that anything that I can think of is going to be the answer to get rid of my doubt. Right. Because oh. doubt's uncomfortable. We don't want mm -hmm. to be in doubt. So and we'll make something up. Pardon? That, 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 those thoughts will arise. No matter, you're going to have thoughts regardless. Like thought will exist. It's part of the well, game. Yeah. So why not put good thought with the yeah, idea wholesome of thoughts. Yeah. Wholesome? Yes. yes. Wholesome right. thoughts. Oh, because okay. doubt is an unwholesome thought. Yeah, doubt's an unwholesome thought because it leads to fear. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. That makes sense. And, and so we can say, I don't need to know that right now. Right. Or it's not dangerous right now. I'll figure it out later. Right now, I'm just going to sit here and feel good and comfortable and happy and relaxed because there's no reason for me to be full of fear because I'm, a, I'm full of doubt. Yeah. When I don't even need to know the answer right now. Right, yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. I guess that, you know, I used to, when I first encountered these teachings and such, I was so surprised because I found so much wonderful stuff within them that I was amazed. I thought to myself, like, why? Why wouldn't everybody know this? And I think that the answer's in, in the question. Like, normally when there's something amazing that not everybody knows about, there's probably a lot of reasons why not everybody knows about it. Um, oh, but that, well, there's a lot of investment in people not knowing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that if the Republicans really knew what the Democrats were up to, they wouldn't be as crazy about politics as they are. Yeah. It's right. the fact that they don't know. And so the Democrats, because the Republicans don't know what the Democrats are really up to, they're terrified of them. Yeah. Right. And so now uh, the way that things have gone is, is that both parties are terrified of each other. Right. And that's what will lead to eventually a civil war. Right. Yeah. We need to tone it down. Right. Yeah. Need to help right. educate those so that uh, at least educate the facts so that the Republicans don't see the Democrats as dangerous. They're just members of my community. Right. And the Democrats are backwards, you know. We have to be able to say, I don't know what they're up to, but they're not dangerous. Right. Right. Yes, I see that's the only way to change the world. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. That makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense to me. That's a tough Well, one. we do that inside. We do that on the right. outside through politics and whatnot, but okay. we do that same thing on the inside. Right. We're kind of at war with each other, uh, within, within one's own mind. We've got a bunch of rules that we've got set up, and then we've, we fail to make up to those rules, and so we fuss at ourselves 
and uh, uh, disagree with ourselves. Uh, a clear example of that is when the meditator Goenka says, watch the breath. And then the next thing he says is when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. But nobody does that. Right. They all want to talk. When the man. mind wanders away from the breath means when we realize that the mind is wandering away from the breath, we start complaining. Oh, monkey mind. Oh, is this the right practice? Oh, there's so problems here. Oh, maybe this is a bad teacher. Maybe this is not a good time for me to retreat. And all of these kinds of yeah. questions come up. Right. Because we are kind of at war within our own mind, and we don't, and we're not capable of developing uh, skills because we insist that we already have them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sherlock Holmes talks about this too. He says a man's mind is like his attic. If you don't clean out the old furniture every once in a while, you're not going to have any room for the good things that you need. That's in Doyle, huh? Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, that's, that's really Buddhist right there. It really yes, the mind like... is like an attic. Exactly so. All right. I know. I wonder why do... like so much. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Right. So if you, if you recognize it that way, the reason why people are having trouble is because they live in a crowded mind. They live in a oh. room of all full of stuff. Yeah. And what we're going to do is never mind about that stuff. Let's come back to the breath and just be here now. Start again. Everything is hunky-dory. So this is the way that we start. And that's also the cleaning process. To clean one thing at a time out. It's uh-huh. not the whole room that we clean out. It's whatever is standing or let us say whatever we notice on the floor. Let's pick that up. Okay. Whatever presents itself in the mind right now, that's what we need to throw out. Right. Okay. okay. And so okay. this little process of is not cleaning out everything out of the mind. It's cleaning right. this thing out of the mind. Yes. This thought. Mm-hmm. The ones that we're looking at right now. And so one of the little jokes that I tell is, is that every shampoo bottle on every store shelf has all the Dhamma that anybody ever needs. It's right there on the back of the shampoo bottle. What does it say? Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. Pick this item up and throw it out. Then pick up the next item and throw it out. And pretty soon, we've got a fairly clean room. One, One unwholesome, dirty thought at a time. We pick that up and throw it out. And then we do that over again and over again and over again. And that's the basis of the whole teaching of the Vedama right there. Okay. I love that. I'm hyped now. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Damarada, I got to go home. I got to cook dinner. But I want to tell you you so much first. And I love talking to you. This has been a delightful conversation. I really enjoyed it, Alex. I really did too, Damarato. Thank you so much, man. And much love to you and yours out there. I'm going to call you again sometime here soon, all right? Yes, I'll see you again soon. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.